Ever wondered how you go about starting a band? Of course, there's lots of ways to start a band. Stick around and you'll hear one example of how it was done. You're listening to episode one of the podcast, Who Walks In? The story of the new Harlem jazz band. My name's Bill Morris. Trombone, pianist and drummer, aged 18 to 22 years to join a vintage jazz band. Based in Frankston and Brighton District, preferably... (laughs) I didn't read that before. Preferably debauched and brilliant. (laughs) How funny. (laughs) Yes, well, I... I placed that ad, and surprisingly, surprisingly, they printed that last bit. That was Ian Smith reading an advertisement he placed in the Age newspaper over 50 years ago on May the 17th, 1969. We'll hear later how successful Ian's advertisement was, but the story actually starts a lot earlier. In my own mind, I always seemed to have had some kind of an interest in music. came out from England when I was three and a half or so, lived in Tasmania and I learnt to whistle. When I was in grade three at school, and this is down in Frankston, we'd do singing and stuff in class and if there was ever any solo work that had to be sung or whistled for that matter, there was a bloke named Harvey Jones and me and we were the sort of, we were the singers in the, in the, in the grade. If there was a bit of a solo to be done or whistled or something, me or Harvey would be doing it, you know. And I always used to enjoy singing and then when I was at high school, in first form, I actually joined the junior school choir, which was sort of not really the done thing, you know. You were sort of viewed rather suspiciously by the other boys if you wanted to be in the junior school choir. But then at the same time, of course, I was discovering, as a lot of kids do around about that age, um, the radio and listening to music and stuff on the radio... And I used to listen to the sort of top 40 radio stations of the day, you know, Stan Rofe and uh, Don Lan and a few other DJs that used to play things all the time. And, of course, we were being influenced, which we didn't know, I didn't know, but we were being influenced by, by, the, by the black American groups, the pop culture of the day, which was the vocal groups like the Diamonds and the 
coasters and all those beautiful songs like Yakety Yak. Take out the papers and the trash. Or you don't get no spending cash. If you don't scrub that kitchen floor, you ain't gonna rock and roll no more. Yakety Yak. Don't talk back. Just finish cleaning up your room. But at the same time, there was a, a sort of a, a, a resurgence of interest in, in jazz music and folk music, quite a bit of that stuff around, and I can remember I had an old radiogram in my bedroom, which I'd inherited from my parents, and I could lie in bed at night and fiddle with the knobs and tune into radio stations and things, and one night I, I can remember to hearing, specifically can remember hearing two different tunes at different times. One of them was one of the Bing Crosby recordings of Mississippi Mud with the vocal trio, and I thought, gee, that's good. Didn't know anything about it, but I thought, oh, that's nice. What are you boys moaning about? That Mississippi Mud. Oh, that's pretty. When the sun goes down, the tide goes up, the doctor gather around and they all begin to shout. Another one I can remember is the Charles Trenet recording of La Mer, which really is a very emotional recording La mer qu'on voit danser le long du golfe clair a des reflets d'argent la mer des reflets changeants sous la pluie la mer Ian joined the Cadet Drum Corps at high school so that, as he says, I could get my hands on some drumsticks and a drum, and he really enjoyed playing the drums. A year later, he started going to a jazz dance at the Mechanics Hall in Frankston and started taking lessons from the band's drummer, Hal Boyle. The band was the Melbourne Dixieland Jazz Band. Ian recalls being at the Mechanics Institute one night in 1963. They had a big old television set out the back where they also used to serve coffee and stuff. And it was a Saturday night and there was no one in the hall, hardly. There were about half a dozen kids there, plus the band. And the reason for that was the Beatles were on the Ed Sullivan show. All the kids who would have normally been in the hall, dancing and having a lot of fun and were at home watching the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan show. And I'm in the hall, backstage, or round behind the stage, watching the Ed Sullivan show and the Beatles in the hall. And the band has knocked off because they wanted to come and watch the Beatles as well. So I'm sitting there, and I'm only a little kid still, I'm only 15 or 14, however old I was, and I'm sitting at the table and I'm looking at the TV in front of me and two members of the band are on my left-hand side, and the Beatles are on the Ed Sullivan Show, and they do their thing. Ladies and gentlemen, here are four of the nicest youngsters we've ever had on our stage. The Beatles! Bring them on!
I get to the end of it on the Ed Sullivan show and one of these guys in the band says to the other one, well, that's the end of us. <laughs> and it was too. And then I'm having a drum lesson from Hal. He said to me, what do you want to do anyway, Smithy? And I said, I want to be a jazz drummer like you, Mr Boyle. <laughs> Mr Boyle advised Ian to forget about being a jazz drummer and get on to that rhythm and blues thing that's coming in. By the mid-60s, Ian was playing drums in a local rock band. I played for about a year or a year and a half or something in this little rock band, the year after I finished school. And we had good fun. It was a good little covers band, as they would now be called, but we didn't call it a covers band. We were just playing the music that we liked, which we would have called at that stage rock and roll, I suppose. But we did covers of Beatles songs and a bit of Fats Domino, a bit of this, a bit of that, you know, whatever you liked. At the same time, Ian religiously tuned in to the ABC on Saturday mornings to listen to the jazz program presented by Eric Child. For me, it was compulsory listening. I had to listen. Uh, for the first quarter of an hour or so of his program, he'd play maybe three vintage tracks and then follow it up with some later stuff. And those early vintage tracks that, uh, that he used to play, they're the ones that, that, I, that really got me. And I can remember specifically regarding Eric Child's program, I can recall hearing the Johnny Dodds recording of Piggly Wiggly. hearing East St. Louis Toodaloo, Ellington. I can recall hearing a number of other Ellington things. Kirk's recording of um, the Mesa Stomp, I think it's pronounced, or Mesa Stomp, Mesa Stomp, and I actually asked my grandmother in England to find that recording and send it to me. It was an Ace of Hearts LP, and she did. <laughs> time as Ian's interest in jazz grew, he started thinking about forming a jazz band. I started to sort of think, you know, drums is good, I like playing the drums, I really do. And I tried to get a band together with another kid there who was at school who owned a trumpet, and I thought, he's a trumpet player, and I actually had a couple of little rehearsals with this kid, 
but he couldn't play. He had no idea and he had no interest, really. He was keen enough for me to come and hang out in his bungalow with him in his house and have a bit of a whack with a pair of sticks on something, but he had no idea, and I tried to sort of play records and things to him and stuff, and he wasn't really interested. By this stage, Ian was getting interested in playing the trumpet. There was another kid at school who had a cornet. I got talking to him, and he said, oh, you know, I've got a cornet, you can buy it if you like. And it was a load of rubbish, and I paid him five bucks for it. I'd nicked a bugle from the Q store at Cadets, and I'd started blowing in this bugle, figured out how to sort of, you know, you had to sort of do that with your chops and put it on a mouthpiece and and this noise came out the other end. And So then I was blowing away on this bugle and then I got the cornet. I discovered there was a a trumpet for sale at Brashes in Frankston, but I didn't have any money. And uh, I got this mate of mine to buy this thing. He said, oh, yeah, I'd like to play the trumpet. So he bought the thing. But, of course, he didn't really have an interest in music either. So after a few months, I kept saying to him, how are you going with the trumpet? You know, Simon, are you getting getting there? He said, oh, I haven't actually had much time to practice, you know, all this sort of stuff. So he finished up lending it to me. <laughs> Once he had a trumpet, he got to work and taught himself to play it. The kid that had the trumpet that didn't want to play, the first one, he had a Tuner Day book, and I think I borrowed his Tuner Day book that had the fingering for the trumpet in it but it also had the notation written down and by this stage my mother we never had a piano at home but she could see that I was vaguely interested in music or very interested she acquired a a big old American player piano Astoria and Clark which I've still got and in the Tuna Day book I realized something and that was that the Written music, if you like, for a trumpet had no correlation to the actual music on a piano. I had no understanding of why, or but a, but a trumpet written C actually sounds like B flat when you play the piano. Now, when I discovered that, I thought I'm not going to bother with anything to do with <laughs> with the written notated music, and it's too hard, and I can't be bothered. I'd rather just play play, you know. And I didn't sort of call it playing by ear or anything. I'd just rather learn things and play them that way. And so that's what I did. Soon Ian started to meet others who were already playing in bands. As you do when you're starting a band, you sort of carry a pen and paper around with you and get phone numbers and things and run into people and they say, yes, well, I know such and such who plays something. And the original band that I had, which evolved over a period of time, included... Peter Cass on the tuba. I met Cass through the Bob Clements Music Shop because I went in there to hire a band for my sister's school social. Peter Cass discovered that I was looking for a band and didn't let me get away, as it were. And they finished up doing the school social and that band uh, had in it Andy Lelliot on the trombone and uh, Ross Wall playing the trumpet, Peter Cass and a few other people. A couple of the guys finished up playing in the first version of the New Harlem band that I had, which was, um, it wasn't called the New Harlem band, I can't remember what I called it at the time, probably nothing, but uh, it was Peter Cass and um, Billy Mitchell, my mate Billy Mitchell from Frankston, and Len Watterson playing the banjo, and Andy Lilliot did a few things with us on trombone, and Colin Elliott playing the clarinet. 
The group played a few small gigs, but some of the guys weren't always available and the band didn't make much progress. In 1968, Ian was again looking for interested musicians to join his band. I met Helen Fleming. Helen and two other girls used to get on the train at Cheltenham when I was travelling up from Frankston to go to work. This was, I was only 19 or 20. And we got talking to these girls in the morning on the train and Helen said, oh, my boyfriend's a clarinet player. I said, oh, yeah, good. And the next thing I know, I was invited to his 21st, I think. Ian was older than me. It might have been Helen's 21st. And Ian was there, so I met Ian, and that's how he finished up being involved. He soon managed to complete the front line after approaching trombonist Tim Harding. I got a phone call from Ian Smith. Now, I didn't know Ian. I think up to that point he was mainly a drummer, and he was taking up the cornet, and he wanted to form a band. But he knew me from somewhere. I'm not sure whether he'd seen me at a convention or, or whatever, but he knew of me. And so he asked me if I was interested in having a bit of a blow on Saturday afternoons, as you do. Tim had been interested in jazz from an early age. Well, I first became interested in jazz, I think, about the age of 12. And uh, I had a neighbour named Chris Deutscher, who was also interested in jazz. And uh, he was taking up the cornet. And so I took up the trombone. And we formed a uh, a jazz band, um, but my interests were more in the uh, m- more in the Chicago and New York styles of early jazz, whereas Chris Deutscher was more interested in New Orleans jazz. And uh, eventually, this led to a parting of the ways. Um, so I played in Chris Deutscher's band for two or three years. We went to the 20th Australian Jazz Convention in 1965 in Sydney, at which I was only 15. And uh, I was heavily impressed by some of the music that I heard there, especially um, Graham Bell with, with Ken Heron on trombone, Bob Bernard, big influence, the Red Onions I already knew about, and Chris Deutsch's band played, appeared with um, Alan Brown on drums and um, Peter Mackay on the piano, who was a knockout. Deutsch's band playing Waffle Man's Call at the 1965 Sydney Jazz Convention with Tim Harding on trombone. Tim was a student at Monash University and used to get together to play with other students. We had a little jam session at, uh, at Monash at lunchtimes. It's run by Tim Shaw. On, he was playing cornet at the time and uh, Dave Perkins on trombone and Bruce Woodcock. Tim brought Bruce Woodcock along to rehearsals and he became the band's pianist for a time. After Bruce left, Tim brought in an old school friend, David Allardyce, to play piano. Len Watterson was still on board playing banjo, and Ian's old friend Billy Mitchell was still on drums. The band only needed a tuba player to complete a seven-piece lineup. It turned out Tim had a tuba player up his sleeve as well. I brought in Jeff Parks on the tuba. Jeff's father was a 
friend of my father's and I knew that Jeff Parks was playing tuba at school. Vern Parks and Bruce Harding had become good mates at the Beaumaris branch of the Returned Soldiers League. Bruce told my father that his boy was starting a jazz band and that they had you know, pretty much everyone they needed, but they needed a tuba player. And my father piped up and said, well, my son Geoffrey's learning the tuba. Jeff's interest in music had started much earlier. My maternal grandfather used to import wirelesses and was quite wealthy, but that all changed when the Second World War broke out and he had to close his um, business because there was no money for wirelesses. But anyway, he had a lot of stuff and he taught me how to do a bit of electronics on the old valve radios, wirelesses and gramophones and things. And also I used to get stuff like that from hard rubbish collections. At some stage I must have picked up a wind-up gramophone and a whole lot of old 78s. And among that stuff, you know, there was Frankie Valley, there was all sorts of stuff that I used to listen to a lot. But my favourite among all of that was Al Bowley. And I just adored Al Bowley with the Ray Noble Orchestra. A Couple of Fools in Love was always my very most favourite. Still is. The boys at Jeff's school were encouraged to join the Army Cadet Corps. We'd seen the um, cadets marching out on the oval and doing all sorts of rushing about, and I thought, well, I don't really want to be a cadet. And somehow I got it into my head to join the band because you didn't have to work anywhere near as hard. And it looked like a bit of fun too. So I joined the band to play drums. But needless to say, there were far too many drummers and they needed a broad coverage of all the instruments. And I think at that stage they might have only had one other one tuba player and um, the band master and teacher of brass and woodwind anyway, Norm Darth, he got me a half scholarship to learn the tuba, which I think probably meant he just charged half as much. Now, within the band, there was a little subset led by this English kid who, he seemed way mature for his age, and he played trumpet. But he's put together a little jazz band. But the tuba player at that stage was the main tuba player, Robin Croft, who we called Rube. Um, so they didn't need a tuba player. My father, at my request, bought me a banjo. Because I could play a bit of guitar, I thought, well, I can learn a few banjo chords and be the banjo player. And we called ourselves the Skeleton Janglers or something crazy like that. But, gee, we had a fantastic time. 
With a complete lineup, the band rehearsed weekly. Tim remembers the process of arranging tunes. Now, at our rehearsals, because we were interested in three-part harmonies with the saxophone, trumpet, trombone, I think it was mainly me who was given the job of working out these harmonies, and I was starting to get interested in arranging. So often at rehearsals, Ian and I would discuss tunes to play, and he'd suggest some, and I'd, I'd suggest some, and then I'd work out some harmonies on the piano, because I, w- I had a piano at home. I could play a sort of a stride style, and I knew all about chords, and knowing about chords uh, is very helpful for learning how to harmonise things. I would work out harmonies in advance, and at rehearsals, Ian would usually play the melody, of course, on the corner, and then I'd say to Ian Fleming, Ian, would you mind playing these notes? And I'd play them on the piano, and then I'd say, I'll play these notes, and voila, we had a three-part harmony. So that was often the opening chorus. Then we had solos, and uh, everybody got a solo, as you do, and then the last chorus was often uh, more ad-lib, freewheeling. With a growing repertoire, the band started doing gigs. House parties, 21sts, some at the Royal Hotel. According to Tim, the band's early name was partly inspired by a gig at the Royal Hotel. After we'd been rehearsing on Saturday afternoons for quite a while, Ian got us some gigs at the Royal, I think it was the Royal Hotel in Mornington. So the name of the band became the Royal Harlem Band, or the Royal Harlem Heptet, I think. At the start of 1969, Len Watterson left and joined a band which included Jeremy Kellogg, Simon Wetnall and Peter Cass. Fortunately, Ian Fleming had a friend who played banjo. His name was Chris Farley. Chris remembers having an interest in trad jazz when he was very young, before he came to Australia from England. His favourite bands included... Temperance Seven, Kenny Ball, Ackerbelk, all the 1960s jazz bands, The Revival. My stepfather bought records. I even bought a jazz record in England when I was 12, Ackerbelk. I think it was uh, Stranger on the Shore, which is hardly jazz, but the other side was. I bought a banjo from the Dandenong Banjo Club for £14 because all my friends decided to start a jazz band and they all bought their instruments before me and all that was left was the banjo. So that's why I got a banjo. But I'm the only one that's still playing out of all the friends. So it turned out good. He remembers some gigs, but they were few and far between, but mostly charity. We, we did them for nothing, just to... You know, people's houses, chook sheds. I remember the we were actually in a, I think it was might have been Narry Warren. We played in a, a chook shed, and I remember it being a chook shed because one of the chooks decided to poo all over our chord book, all over our music. We kept that chord book for a long time to remind us of our humble beginnings. In early 1969, Tim and David decided to leave the band and drummer Billy Mitchell also moved on. After that, the four remaining members, the two Ians, Chris Farley and Jeff Parks, got together occasionally. Then I sort of started to round up the guys again and say, look, you know, do you want to to have another go and we'll see what happens? And we started rehearsing 
at Jeff Park's mother's place because Jeff was still living at home in uh, Bo Morris. And we had some nice little times there and we sort of rehearsed with just three or four of us for a while, for a couple of weeks. And then I put the ad in the paper. The headline on the front page of Melbourne's Age newspaper on Saturday, May 17, 1969, read, Strikers throw down the gauntlet. Let O'Shea go or we strike again. This headline referred to the jailing of Clary O'Shea, the leader of the Victorian branch of the Australian Rail, Tram and Bus Union, which had led to widespread strikes throughout Australia. Tucked away in the classified advertisements, at the back of the same paper, in the amusements section, was the advertisement placed by Ian Smith. Ian's ad for a trombonist, drummer and pianist ran alongside ads for Funny Girl at the Bercy Cinema and an intriguing one placed by a three to ten piece band called the Rhythm Airs that simply stated, Vacant Tonight, with a phone number. So how successful was Ian's advertisement? From that advertisement we acquired Richard Opat, the drummer, and uh, Michael Cousins turned up, the trombonist, as well. Michael didn't last long, he lasted one rehearsal, I think, um, and we never found a piano player from that advertisement. You've been listening to episode one of Who Walks In, the story of the New Harlem Jazz Band. In the next episode, Ian completes the lineup and the band records their first LP. Well, actually, half an LP. You can learn more about the band and contact us at whowalksin.com. Look forward to hearing from you. This has been a Wasting Time production.